Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Before I get started, I do want to just say, can we can we uh, thank our volunteers, especially the band and tech, who is doing two services today? That's a big deal. So thank you guys. Um, a lot of, you know, me as someone who likes to have the plan ready and all that. I, I know the uncertainty of the week to week is is a lot. So I appreciate you guys your flexibility. Uh, today is the third Sunday of Advent. The time of year where we are both uh, remembering all that God has done, as well as anticipating all that He will do uh, and that He's promised to do. And so last Sunday we looked at the first six verses in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel. And in that, we saw John going around the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he called, as the song says, for every heart to prepare him room. Prepare room for him in their lives. And so in this morning's passage, uh, it's immediately following that. It seems as if it's one instance, but um, it's debatable on whether or not this is a summary of what was going on for a season. But we're going to see John's proclamation and journey to the wilderness. Uh, We're going to see crowds respond to John's proclamation. And they're going to journey to the wilderness with him and seek to be baptized by him. So let's start with this morning's first point. We are called to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And we may be asking, what does this have to do with Advent? Jesus, uh, well, this is way past Jesus' birth. What does this have to do with Christmas season? And uh, yeah, it's roughly 30 years into Jesus' life. A pastor, uh, a pastor uh, Kathy Beach Verhe, said, There is no getting to Bethlehem and the sweet baby in the manger without first hearing the rough prophet in the wilderness call us to repentance. So yes, every year in church, in the church calendar, typically in the lectionary, we spend the first couple weeks of Advent uh, walking through the John, John the Baptist story, seeing how as an infant before he was born was the prophet to come and uh, foretelling, uh, um, the foretelling of Jesus' coming was wrapped in and tied to his coming. And now as John has began his earthly ministry. He too is preparing the way now in this manner. Let's start in verse 7 though and let's see how we are called to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So John says to the crowds that came out to to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. So these crowds are coming to hear him preach. He's trending. He's the talk of the town. He's becoming a big deal. There's a lot of hype behind a lot of energy behind this John the Baptist who is coming on the scene. And he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance or in keeping with repentance. Uh, This phrase, uh, as I thought it through, I I was reminded of um, often when I go on double dates with my wife, uh, I'm usually the person out of the four of us of the two couples that'll send a group text and be like, hey, what's the attire? Like, how, 
how nice are we getting tonight? Like, because I don't want to be that person who's like overdressed and everyone else is, you know, just casual. But then I also don't want to be the casual person and everyone else was like all dolled up or uh, slicked back hair or anything like that. So I like to get in sync, get on that page, on the same page. So similarly, there's this uh, sync, there's this in keeping with each other, that this repentance that is in keeping uh, with the ba- or a baptism worthy of repentance. Or perhaps we've grown up in a family that has a, um, you know, they have a strong history. And perhaps as you've been raised by your family, maybe when you were younger, uh, one of your parents or grandparents said, you know, this is how Seldonia men are. Or this is what it means to be a Seldonia. This is how we act or live or love. Um, or if you, you know, went contrary to that, perhaps it was, hey, the correction came as, hey, this is not how we as, as Seldonias act. Or this is not how we, uh, this is not what it looks like to be in our family. Our family does not do this. So, so John is saying, he's calling us not simply to believe in Jesus, but to behave as if we belong to Jesus. So what are these fruits worthy of repentance? It's an interesting phrase. Let's look down at verse 11. Just before that, the crowds have asked him, what then should we do? In reply, John says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. So to the crowds, he's encouraging them, this fruit of, worthy of repentance looks like generosity. It looks like contentment. Contentment with what we have. I mean, it's just two coats and he's saying give away one. Speaking from a person who has 10, 15 coats maybe. Um, but he's saying be content. Find peace in knowing that your Father will provide for you all that you need. And out of that generosity that comes from the Father, be generous to others. Similarly, the tax collectors ask the same thing. And in verse 13, he says, uh, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. What does this mean for us today? Um, The term essentially is extortion, which not a lot of us are in the position to extort people. Uh, Perhaps for us, um, you know, in a first world scenario or in a consumer and service-based economy, perhaps this just looks like not taking advantage of those we employ or hire for service. Perhaps this means paying them fairly, um, treating them well, even though we can get away with it, right? Even though maybe minimum wage is, you know, I'm paying the minimum wage. That's all that's required of me. Well, maybe what's required of you by our master is, is more to treat them well. Or perhaps it means, you know, in, in Christmas shopping, we buy less, but perhaps we buy things that pay people better. Or perhaps it means at the restaurant we tip well. Regardless of how they treated us, we treat them as our Jesus treated us. Showering us with generosity even when we were not worthy of his generosity. And then there's one more group of people that he, that he gives the example of what it looks like to bear fruit worthy of repentance. In verse 14, soldiers also ask him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now, soldiers in this day in the ancient Near East, 
really covered a lot of ground compared to today. They were not just simply military stationed overseas or stationed at a base in a nation or city state. Um, they really served as law enforcement as well. Uh, law enforcement is a newer invention of the last couple centuries. Uh, prior to that, communities just uh, congregated together to uphold social norms and ethics. Um, but, uh, but in this day, the military were of that, of that type. And similarly, the military at this case are actually um, a different people group, most likely. They're most likely uh, ethnically European, of Roman descent, and they are there in uh, the villages of the Hebrew people who are oppressed. And it's common and customary, and they're able to get away with mistreating people, and often based on race and ethnicity. And he's telling the soldiers, no, the way is different. The way of Jesus is different. Even though you're allowed to, even though you can get away with it, this way is different. Be content also to them with their pay, with their wages, with their lifestyle. Uh, Velimati Karkainen, a New Testament theologian, wrote, For the Baptist, repentance had less to do with how fervently one prays or how faithfully one attends the worship service. Instead, it had everything to do with how one handled riches, executed public service, and exercised stewardship. So John ties Advent to both ethics and eschatology. And here's what, here's what I mean by this. The coming of Jesus with also his inauguration and fulfillment of his kingdom. And here's how we essentially do this. Um, he calls them to avoid both extremes of, uh, in view of eschatology in today. Meaning eschatology, if you're un unfamiliar with that term, it just simply means the study of end times. What is coming at the end? And as we went through in 1 Peter in the last few months, the end is not something, some wishful thinking, but it's actually something, a reality that in, in, infiltrates our daily life. It's something that in, invigorates hope. It breathes life, resurrection life, into our daily lives here and now. It changes the way we live now. But the problem is, on one end, uh, and there's, I'm going to say theologically conservative and theologically liberal, and just to be clear, these terms don't uh, directly line up with political, politically conservative or politically liberal. They're just meaning one side that holds the scriptures very tight, almost, almost so that it suffocates the life out of it, and some that hold the scriptures so open-handedly that the grains, the truth grains and wisdom grains of sand that saturate the scriptures, they just seep through their fingertips and through their hands. And so John is calling us to a middle way here. But one side, the theologically liberal, tend to say, improve the world. The gospel is to improve the world. The gospel of social justice on its own. That Jesus is simply an ethics teacher. Jesus is simply here to just be my cheerleader, self-help, make my life be better here and now. But there's really no wrath to come. Everyone's good. It'll all be all right in the end. And then the theologically conservative tend to the, the extreme of that end, are divorced from the world. They separate themselves from the world. 
Uh, there's an escapist mentality. Uh, this can typically come in the rapture left behind movement of I've got my get out of jail free card. I'll wait until uh, the last bus to heaven leaves. But John is calling us and he's foretelling of Jesus and his kingdom as being a different way. The prophet Amos in Amos 5 from the message version, God is saying this in, in verse 21. He says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. And I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. A singer-songwriter, John Foreman, wrote a song in light of this passage called Instead of a Show, um, detailing the show that comes from the crowd. That Amos and John is addressing the crowd that is so identifying with, hey, we're sons of Abraham. I thought we're good. I thought we're in. I thought we're in the kingdom. Appealing on the basis of my status. And Foreman writes, uh, in light of God's word in Amos, he constantly resounds this line, I hate all your show. But verse 3, God says, or he's speaking as God, saying, your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing right along with the band. You shine up your shoes for services, but there's blood on your hands. You've turned your back on the homeless and the ones who don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religion games. There's blood on your hands. See, we're called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, worthy of repentance. But the reality is, as John points out here to each of these crowds, we're unable to actually do this on our own. We're unable to bear fruits on our own. Augustine said, those who haven't produced such fruits have no reason to suppose that by a barren repentance, they will earn pardon for their sins. That faith without deeds is dead. That a life that doesn't bear good fruit, that doesn't love their neighbor, is not a life in keeping with repentance. Look at verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out of, uh, to, to be baptized by him, he says, you brood of vipers, meaning you children of snakes. This is a symbol in the scriptures that you are literally an enemy of God. He's referring to them as such. See, it's biblical to hate snakes, just so we're on the same page. Uh, my fear is not irrational. It is rooted in scripture. Uh, but no, do you see our place in the crowd? Do you see our place in the brood of snakes? I think we read this passage, and I don't know about you, but I know when I read these passages, I often think, oh yeah, those, those guys. But no, we're in this. We're in this crowd. We are a part of this crowd apart from Jesus. Before Jesus in our BC days. Do you see your place amongst the crowd? Let's see if we can unpack that. Verse 8. John continues, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. 
But he says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. He's saying, don't appeal on behalf of your lineage. Up until this point in, in uh, redemptive history, God has appealed to people mainly through the nation of Israel. He said, these are my people. It's mainly seemed to have been an ethnic people group that he is primarily interacting with. But what God later reveals through the New Testament scriptures and through Jesus and the apostles and so on is that no, we, were mis we misunderstood and didn't see totally the different hints and foreshadows embedded throughout the Old Testament that God would through Abraham and his descendants bless all nations and people groups. That it would not just be him and Israel, but that the church would become the new Israel. And so John is saying, you can't appeal. You can't just be like, oh, I'm good. Like You can't come before God and be like, it's okay. I'm son of Abraham. I'm a daughter of Abraham. That's not how it works anymore. It actually never worked that way. You can't use that defense, that appeal. The message version says, don't think you can pull rank like that. Leon Morris, a commentator on the book of Luke, said, The wrath of God is an important topic in both Testaments. It stresses the divine hostility to all evil. Notice in verse 8 that he's saying, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham, but even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. This axe, it's this impending judgment and wrath. He's saying it's there, but notice also there's hope because the tree hasn't been cut yet. He's saying it's coming, potentially. There will be an evaluation, but the tree is still rooted in the ground. But we should see the warning. We should heed that warning. Wesley D. Avram Another pastor wrote, John calls the good works that make hearers worthy of their baptism fruit, born from the tree of their lives. It's not enough to presume that because one is a child of the church, a quote-unquote good citizen or, per, or a person of status, one is secure before God. I love this line, don't confuse sitting on the limb with being either the tree or its fruit. For the tree might not be so strong or fruitful as one thinks. Shifting the metaphor, it might be more a snake than a tree. Recall that John does not call his hearers vipers. He calls them a brood of vipers. The brood are the children, the produce, even the fruit. And so why does John throw out this weird statement that even from these stones, God could raise up children of Abraham? Uh, early church father Origen, he wrote, from what stones? Surely he was not pointing to irrational material stones, but to people who are uncomprehending and sometimes hard. He's saying perhaps the stones are actually the people themselves. The people that in this moment are not getting it. They see the need, but they're not, it's not totally connecting. But John continues by warning the crowd of the judgment and wrath. We saw that in verse 9, but if you jump to 17, he closes the section referencing the judgment and impending wrath as well. It says, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. 
but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So I, Jesus, unfortunately for me, uses a lot of agricultural illustrations. I don't do much out there except mow the lawn, and even that I'm probably not the best at, but it gets the job done. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and transpose this to more like a baking or cooking illustration because uh, that's more my forte. Aaron likes the yard. I, I like the kitchen. Um, and so uh, for those of us who cook or bake, sometimes there's recipes that we may have, no matter how good they are, uh, no matter how precisely we follow the recipe, sometimes it just comes out bad. Uh, and this happens, uh, our, our families, you're like, yeah, I know. It's like, what happened? Um, yeah, in particular, this happens all the time with our family's Spanish rice recipe. And I don't know why, but every four to seven batches, it's just like, dump it. We got to start it over because that is trash. Um, it's not worthy of our dinner plate right now. Sorry, that might sound really bad. But anyways, that's the feeling at that point where you're like, this is not good. How did some not even get cooked? And there's nothing different we did. But similarly, Jesus in this time, he's almost taste testing. He's, he's, he's evaluating in this, illustration, te- in this illustration, testing whether or not this is worthy of his kingdom. We are those grains that he is assessing. And whether or not the chaff, we will be chaff thrown out into the fire. Leon Morris again writes, notice that Luke includes this very portion in what he calls the good news that John preached. Judgment is not, at first sight, very good news, but it is an integral part of the gospel unless we can be sure that in the end, evil will be decisively overthrown. There is no ultimate good news. You see, this is often a pushback on the God of the Scriptures. That there is a God who, while loving and gracious and merciful, also is a God of judgment, of holiness, that may lead to judgment and uh, wrath for some. And it becomes a hindrance because it sounds like he's unloving. But see, Leon Morris is pointing out for us that that's not actually so. But I don't think if we actually ever took that and applied that to our own community, if someone does something evil in our community, while we may be able to forgive them here and now, uh, we do want to uh, withstand and contain the evil, if you will. And that's why we've you know, created jails and, and institutions and things of that sort, or perhaps rehabilitation environments and things of that sort. But similarly, for God, man, we... We can't look at the evils, the atrocities of human history and think, how, is, how could God be good if he doesn't make this right? If he doesn't avenge his people? If he doesn't vindicate them? If he doesn't redeem them? And that's the tension of Scripture, and that's where John even adds that in his Gospel, that God is a God of love and peace and redemption, but he's also a God of holiness, hence the Holy Spirit and fire. Wrapping up this point, uh, Wesley Abram notes that the impossibility of this life that points us to our need for Jesus 
it's, it's these standards to bear fruit in these manners and how impossible it is for us as human beings to just do that on our own, to bear fruit on our own. Sure, we can do good deeds, but the scriptures simultaneously t- tell us that those good deeds are often rooted in selfish intent. Hence that John Foreman song, I Hate All Your Show. You do all these great things, but who are you doing them for? When was the last time you sang to God? When was the last time you did it solely for Him? The Reformers taught us that we can't know the riches of God's grace until we understand the depths of our guilt before Him. The Reformers had this helpful three-step guilt, grace, gratitude. We can't understand God's grace and therefore rejoice in gratitude before we understand our guilt before God. It's understanding the depravity of our heart, our guilt, that leads us to see how rich and deep and profound His grace is, which then motivates, propels us to a life of gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And that's why this is part of John's gospel message. That although we can't bear fruit on our own, there is hope. Miriam Kamel wrote one more time, Before one can receive the Spirit, before one can understand that Christ is Messiah, one must repent from self-sufficiency. Must, one must see their guilt. One must see how often we try to appeal to God on the basis of being sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, or being good people, good citizens, or I'm not like them, or, you know, I've grown up in a Christian home, or I've done this, or I haven't done that. But even that, that is identifying with the Pharisee in the Gospels, who comes before God and says, thank you that I'm not like this guy. And it's this guy who comes before God and says, rips his clothes and says, woe is me. Forgive me, I'm a, I'm a wicked sinner. Who is closer to the Father's heart there? Who has a greater understanding of God, of the riches of his grace? It's the one who understands the depth of their guilt and therefore rejoices in gratitude. And that's the hope we have, that Jesus fulfilled ultimately our call to bear fruit. We see this in verse 15, and it's foreshadowed, obviously, as we continue down the Advent journey. But starting in verse 15, he says, As as the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, or your your scriptures might say the Christ. This is not Jesus' last name. This This is a title. Is Jesus the Christ? Jesus the Messiah? It'd be as if my last... My surname would have been Tyler the pastor, Nate the doctor, and so on. There were no last names back then. But they're thinking, John, this must be him. They've been expectant. They've been waiting for four centuries. And the talks keep growing. He continues to trend higher and higher amongst the community. But John answers all of them saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. I want to jump over to John 15 as we wrap up. John 15, starting in verse 1. In light of knowing that Jesus fulfilled our call to bear fruit, this is our new reality. We're no longer having to approach and appeal to God on the basis of our sonship in Abraham or or daughtership in, in, in Abraham. No, we're appealing on the basis of the Son of God. That we are now sons of God because of the Son of God. So we are no longer having to be the sole tree, but we are now grafted into the vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me or remain in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But that means with him, we can do this. We can now bear fruit. In him, as we abide and remain in him, we can do great things for Jesus. We can honor him in this way of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. I'm going to invite the band up as we wrap up this morning's service. As we finish uh, this morning's passage, and with next week, we won't be getting into the fourth week of Advent passage with our Christmas program going on. just want us to see and spend this time of reflection and worship and response asking the question, what then should we do, as they asked. Man, again, to remind us, John's purpose The purpose of us annually in the Advent season, looking at the John the Baptist passages, is that John is the one preparing the way for Jesus. And Advent, as we are preparing and anticipating Jesus, and yes, he's already come, but it's this season that we can regularly reflect on and anticipate and hope for him coming in our lives here and now, in our hearts and and minds, and in our communities. But it's also seeing how he will be coming as well, seeing the hope and promise that he has given us. And so I encourage us as we reflect in this time, we do four things in this time. We reflect on the words of Jesus. And I encourage you to be asking the Spirit, what then should we do now? What then should I do now? Asking the Spirit perhaps, man, is there something in my life that I'm holding on to? Something, a way that I'm, appealing to you on the basis of my own identity, my own good works, my own Abrahamic identity, if you will. I'm appealing to God and saying, no, I don't deserve this, or, you know, more of the Pharisee approach rather than the, the sinner approach. And ask the Spirit to help you, to convict you, to help you eliminate that, or Him to get rid of that barrier between you and God. 
And then if he does convict you, I encourage you to confess and receive forgiveness. God is faithful to forgive if we, if we confess our sins. And then we encourage you to give sacrificially so the mission of LifeBridge goes forward. But then we encourage you to sing, to rejoice, and to sit even perhaps in the singing of the saints to together celebrate, both anticipate what God has done, or remember what God has done, and simultaneously anticipate what God has promised to do in our lives here and now and in the years and decades to come. Let's pray, and then we will sing one more song. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for John the Baptist, for his message, for for using him to prepare the way nearly 2,000 years ago for you, Jesus. But we thank you for preparing the way even now in our hearts, whatever it is you are wanting to do in our own hearts and lives this season, in, in our family, in our households, in our workplace, in our community, whatever that may be, God. We ask that you have your way. Holy Spirit, we want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We don't want to bear fruit that is no fruit at all, but, but things that we boast in and brag about and, and make us look better. No, we want our lives to make you look better. We want our lives to honor you, to celebrate you, that others might see the grace they have in you because of the guilt that they had before you, and that they too might respond in gratitude towards you. God, we ask that you uh, use this time to encourage our hearts, convict us of any known sin or unknown sin, help us confess and find peace and forgiveness in you, and may we respond in joyful singing and gratitude and communion with one another and you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.